So, uh, welcome again um, to Midtown 12 South, uh, the in-person service and the live stream. Um, whether we can see you or not, uh, it, is, it is good to, to gather, it's good to pause, it's good to, to come together uh, in the best way we know how during a pandemic. Um, today we are starting a new series, our kind of mini spring series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. This series will carry us uh, to Easter, to, to Holy Week, uh, Palm Sunday and Easter and Good Friday, and uh, we'll say more about that later, what we're going to do, but we're going to do about seven or eight weeks in First Thessalonians. Um, and you may be asking, why would we study First Thessalonians? Why would we study this uh, small epistle in the New Testament, this letter of Paul uh, that was written thousands of years ago? Does it have anything to say that was said to them 2,000 years ago that could possibly uh, apply to us thousands of years later? Um, well, uh, the city of Thessalonica was a, was a major player city in the, uh, in the, in the uh, Roman Empire. It was um, the capital city of a region called Macedonia, which was kind of in northern Greece, but it was a Roman-ruled re- Roman region, and the capital city was Thessalonica, which got its name from the sister of Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great that kind of took over the Western world, um, named this very important capital city after his sister, and um, over time, it became kind of this it city. It was, it, was, it was a major player politically. It had a lot of rule and authority. It was a major player economically. It was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a big deal. And into this it city, Paul, who was a church planner um, in the year 8049-ish, uh, goes to Thessalonica to plant a church. He goes to Thessalonica, and just like Paul would do when he would go to new cities and, and plant churches, he would go to the synagogue where there were Jewish believers who were gathering regularly, and he would go to these synagogues and he would say, Jewish believers, you're not going to believe this, but your Messiah has come. I was Jew of Jews. I was Pharisee of Pharisees, and all the Old Testament promises and prophecies have come true, and this one guy named Jesus who was dead and buried and resurrected, and he's the king who's brought his kingdom, and, and the Messiah is here. And he would go and he would debate and he would preach and teach in these Jewish synagogues. So in Thessalonica, there was a synagogue with some Jewish believers, and several of them started to convert to Christianity. They started to say, I think I, I, think I believe in that Messiah that that crazy guy Paul is talking about. Well, as these young believers are converting into Christianity, some opposition began to face them. They began to be persecuted. They began to get tormented. There was opposition and affliction from the community that said, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this Jesus that claims to be the king? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Paul that has claims about this Jesus? I don't know if we're down with that. And so these Thessalonican, that's a word, Thessalonican, that's a word, these people in Thess- Thessalonica started to not like these new converts. And they, they're dragging these people out of their homes and they're bringing them before the city officials and they're saying, kick all these people out of here, especially this Paul guy. This Paul guy is causing riots and causing unrest in city officials. You need to do something about this. So Paul has planted this church, but then he's forced out of town. He has to leave for his life. He's fleeing for his life. And so shortly after, he's worried about these young believers in Thessalonica. He's, he's concerned about them. He's saying, they're young, they're new converts, they're facing this opposition, they're being tormented and persecuted, and I care about them. And so he sends Timothy, his, his young junior assistant pastor, so to speak, and he says, Timothy, I'm not welcome in Thessalonica, but you need to go back and you need to check on them. See how these young new converts are doing in their, in their young faith. See how, see how they're holding up. So Timothy goes and he comes back to Paul with a really good report. 
He says their, their energy is high, their excitement about Jesus is high, they, they, are, they are doing really, really well, but there's some problems. They're still facing opposition. Oh, and by the way, people want to kill them. Oh, and by the way, people want to drive them out of town. And they're kind of struggling with hope. They're not really sure if this is, if this, if this is all going to work out. And they want to know what's happening to their friends and family members when they die. And, and they've got all these theological questions, but they don't have any leadership. So Paul, who loves this young church plant, who's facing all this opposition, writes this letter. It's because he loves them and he wants to encourage them and he wants to say to them, hey, it's going to be okay and I miss you and I long to be with you but I can't come back to you right now but let me tell you some things. Let me encourage you in what you're doing. Let me commend your excitement. Let me, let me stir up that affection for Jesus again and let me tell you some theological things that, that you're going to need if you're going to grow up in the faith. So that's, that's kind of the setting for this letter to console and encourage the spirit of perseverance in this young Thessalonican city. So, a young church in a booming it city that has some issues. Could we learn a thing or two from them? I think so. <laughs> then I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, we still have a pandemic going on. That this is, this is not going the way that anyone thought it would, and there's still some opposition. And even just the, the overlaying um, kind of fog of a year, coming up on a year of a pandemic of despair and loneliness and financial troubles and even just like this this is hard and we all kind of have COVID fatigue by this point even underneath all that even things that aren't directly related to COVID have this have this cloud over them of this is just hard 2021 as we know has been has been hard for many people there's been some unrest and there's questions and vaccines and and all of it is just kind of sitting under the this is it going to be okay? Like, when do we get to go back to normal? And how do I voice and name and acknowledge that this is hard? And we're a young church in an it city that's trying to learn and find our way against opposition and, and against uh, the, the forces and the spirit um, that, that, would, that would want us to not do so well. So is it possible that we could learn from 1 Thessalonians and that what Paul had to say to them is vitally important for us? So as a long way of intro, that is setting the stage for 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you'll turn with me, um, or it'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bibles, um, here's what Paul says. Many people think this is the first letter that Paul ever wrote, um, certainly the, the earliest one that we have record of. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's Paul's acknowledging who's writing the letter, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to this uh, very pastoral epistle um, in the New Testament, and, and we trust um, the mystery and the magic of your word that um, was written thousands of years ago, and it was not written to us, but it was written for us, that, that we believe we come to this very living word, this word that is alive and active, and it cannot be tamed, and we need your word this morning to do what only it can do. We need your word to show us Jesus. That in the middle of our lives, uh, what we walked in here from and what we will walk out of here into, may this, may this sanctuary be more than just a building. May those who are watching at home um, taste your presence even as they long to be physically in this body. Would, would we, all who are joining in right now, um, not leave this time unchanged because we have had an encounter with the living Jesus. We pray also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to lean into this opening chapter, uh, chapter one, and, and it's, it's an intro, and Paul does kind of standard intros in a lot of his letters, um, but it does set the stage for the rest of the letter. And we're going to kind of zoom in on, on, on one thing that Paul says about the Thessalonian church to kind of help us. It almost sets the stage for the whole rest of the book, but it certainly will set the stage for this morning. But these first 10 verses, Paul is recapping um, the story that I told you before I even read the, the passage that, hey, remember when we came to you and remember when we shared the gospel with you? And I know it's been hard and I know it's been difficult, but we've heard, we've heard reports about you, that it's going well and that you are living out your newfound faith and, and you, are, you, are, you are becoming the church in, in Thessalonica and you are living it out and I'm so excited for you. And he's commending them and encouraging them. But in recapping for them, let me, let me retell you, church in Thessalonica, what happened when we were there. I want to remind you of the story. In recapping and in encouraging them with how it went down, he says this one little line that, that is so powerful. It was real for the Thessalonian church, but we need to, we need to draw our attention to it to see what, what is there in, the, in these depths for us. So uh, go back with me to verse 5. He, he's retelling the story, and listen to what he says. He says, our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He's saying, when the gospel was shared with you, you received it, and it came with power because you believed it with conviction. The Holy Spirit was waking you up to the, to the person of Jesus. And he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Like, we had character and integrity when we were preaching the gospel to you. And you then became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction in much opposition, in much trouble, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, one more time, that last part. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, hey, Remember when you heard the gospel. Remember like from the, the first day, the first Sabbath I was there among you teaching you about this person of Jesus. It, was, it found itself, it had immediate opposition. You were hearing the gospel and you were immediately being hated for believing the gospel. While you were hearing the gospel, people were hating you. While you were hearing the gospel, there was much affliction going on. And yet, you received it and believed it with much joy. 
It's almost like Paul is saying, amidst the trouble, amidst the persecution, amidst the affliction, amidst what was going on in their lives, they heard the gospel and received it with joy. In spite of the opposition, in spite of the affliction, in spite of the trouble, and maybe Paul would even go so far as to say, through the opposition and through the affliction and through the trouble, you believed the gospel with great joy. So here's my question. Is that functionally possible? Or is Paul living in fairy tale land? Like, is it possible in your life, is it possible with the trouble that you're facing, is it possible with the affliction and the suffering and, and the opposition that you face in your life, we're going to talk about this in, in, in a little bit, what trouble you're facing, but is it possible to be living full well inside the trouble and have much joy? Is it possible to experience joy while you are suffering? Is it possible for affliction and joy to live together? Is it possible to have a joy, to taste a joy, to know a joy, even while you are being troubled? Would you just, would you just consider that for a minute? That I don't know what you're walking in right now. And, I, and I'm not even about trying to compare your suffering or compare your affliction with other people. I just want to invite you that when you think about what's hard in your life right now, when you think about what, what may be causing a pressure on your soul, which we'll talk about in a minute, is it possible or is it too far-fetched for you to imagine, I can walk in that and I can have much joy in that? Well, let me ask this question. Does your joy come from your circumstances? Now, I know when I ask that, if you've been in church for longer than a month, then you know that, I, that the right answer is supposed to be that, no, my joy is not supposed to be found in my circumstances, but can we talk for a minute? <laughs> that if you're alive, if you have a heartbeat, and you're, you're not a robot, then it is very normal that for us to be prone to find our joy in how things are going. It is very normal that when things are hard, it is difficult to find joy. When life is draining, when life is lonely, it's hard to taste joy. It's part of the human experience. Read the book of Psalms. David is constantly, over and over and over again, crying out to the Lord, my enemies have overtaken me, this is not going the way that I thought it was going to go, and my son wants to kill me, and my people have abandoned me, and my father and my mother hate me, and who are, and then he says, and where are you, God? Like, this doesn't seem like it's going the way it's supposed to go. That David is very in tune with the fact that life is hard, which would lead us to this first admission, or at least this first step. If we're ever going to find joy in our suffering, if we're ever going to find joy in our sorrow and in our affliction, please understand the Bible would tell us the first thing you have to do is acknowledge the affliction and acknowledge the trouble. You actually have to give honor to it. Like, you have to acknowledge and honor the fact that this is really hard. Like, hey, Christian, when you get cut, you bleed. And when you get rejected, it hurts. And when things are despairing, it's normal to not want to get out of bed in the morning. And it's normal to have sleepless nights. And it's normal to wonder how things are going to work out and to be restless about those things. The, the, the God of the Bible does not ever, not once, invite people to live cloud in the, or, you know, pie in the sky, dancing on fairy tale land where things don't actually hurt and, and pretend like things aren't really hard in life. That's not how we find joy in our suffering is by removing the uh, experience of the suffering. Joy in the middle of affliction, joy in the midst of trouble, 
does not mean acting like the trouble isn't hard. Please understand that the Bible is very clear about this, that a Christian is one who first and foremost is someone who is willing to acknowledge their pain, to acknowledge their heartache, and to acknowledge the injustices that they have suffered underneath of and not pretend. And I know that some of you were raised that way. I know that some of you were raised to believe that what the Christian does is the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so when things are hard, I have to just sing some fairy tale songs or pretend like I know some nursery rhymes that make me feel happy even though life is really hard. And so what we've grown up to believe the way even our brains have been wired is that Christians aren't allowed to admit that this is really difficult and that I cry and that I hurt and that this, there's relational strife and I've got longings and, it's, and I've, got, I've got parents that drive me crazy and I've got kids that I don't know how they're going to turn out and I've got finances that I worry about and I've got secrets that I sleep on and all of this is very difficult. And we often try to find our joy like by moving all that stuff out of the way and just focusing on joy. And the Bible would say, no, the way to find joy in your trouble is actually to acknowledge first how hard the trouble is. One must start with honoring their trouble and honoring their pain if one is ever going to find joy in it. So let's talk about the suffering of the Thessalonian church because they were suffering And it's important for us to understand their suffering so that we can begin to understand our suffering because they also had joy in their suffering and how did they get there? So let's start with their suffering. What was their suffering? Well, we actually have an account of their suffering in the Bible. Acts chapter 17 is where Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica and he shares the gospel. It's like eight verses. It's not very long. We'll get the story of when Paul comes to Thessalonica and he shares the gospel in the synagogues and people start hating them and they drag this guy named Jason, which you didn't know was a name in the Bible until you read Acts 17. Jason, some dude, gets dragged out from Thessalonica and he gets brought before the city officials and accused and beaten and he has to pay, he has to post bail in the, in the jail to be able to be set free and they hate him and they're hurling accusations at him and the church and Paul and they're going, get these people out of here. So Paul has to leave. These people who convert to Christianity become immediately despised people. People are trying to shut them up and to get them out of town. They are hated from the moment of their conversion. And the people that hate them are relentless. Like they actually chase Paul to the next town. And, and they're actually relentless. They're, they're persistent in their, this is not going to go down in Thessalonica. And so you can imagine Paul leaves and the people who have just converted, he's going, I wonder how they're going to fare. That's why he sends Timothy and writes this letter. And so when Timothy comes back to Paul and says, they're actually doing great. They actually like, are still believing the gospel. They still like, want to know Jesus. They're still hungry to learn more about who Jesus was and what he did. Paul writes this letter and he says, even though you were despised, even though you were ridiculed, ridiculed even though you were suffering, you received the gospel with great joy. And he says, keep doing that. He's, he's ushering them into the endurance of experiencing joy while they suffer. But it's interesting here that Paul uses a certain word to describe their affliction, to describe their suffering. When he says, you received our word with great affliction, that word there is a Greek word in the original language of the New Testament uh, called philipsis. And and it's a word uh, that's interesting that Paul would use it because there is a word that means persecution that Paul didn't use. He could have said, you received the gospel with great joy while you were being persecuted against, while people were beating you and dragging you out before the officials. But he doesn't use that word. He used the word thalipsis, which is, which is a word that, that 
it entails a suffering, but it leans way more towards the suffering of the inner life. Like you receive the gospel with great joy while you were suffering in here. Yes, people were beating you. Yes, people were wanting to fight you. Yes, people were dragging you out of your houses. But you received the gospel with great joy even while you were suffering in here. The technical word of this word, the technical definition of this word thalipsis is this. It means any trouble or affliction that causes pressure on one's soul. And so many New Testament scholars have have noted that Paul is using that word in particular to describe the kind of affliction that they were facing, to describe the kind of suffering they were facing that is deeper than just the physical fear they may have been in of being persecuted physically. Because what Paul knows, and he knew firsthand, part of what makes suffering externally difficult is the suffering that goes on internally. That Paul knows that the thing that was maybe more painful than them being dragged out of their houses was the suffering of being alienated from their community. Their conversion to Christianity had made them outsiders. Their conversion to Christianity made them a despised people. Their conversion to Christianity, get this, made these Thessalonian converts more lonely than they had ever been. And Paul's saying, you were so lonely. You were so afflicted. You were so despised and outcast in the it city. You used to walk through the town and be welcomed, and now you're walking through the town and you're hated. And you, were, you, were, you heard the gospel in that way, and it's still going on, and yet you had joy. So here's how we can begin to lean into what Paul is saying to them, and maybe we can begin to relate to this. Because some of you may be experiencing some public ridicule in your workplace, or maybe even in your family. People mock you for what you believe. You may be experiencing the, the social persecution of being a Christian. But here's what I know about Christian suffering and why it's important that Paul use this word, philipsis, here. Is that becoming a Christian may sometimes mean external trouble for you. But becoming a Christian will always mean internal trouble for you. <laughs> always. And I don't care how well your life may be going or how well your family may be doing, what your finances look like or what your job feels like these days. I don't care if all that is going great. If you are a Christian, then you are also invited into being very aware, sometimes painfully aware, of what's going on inside of you as well. There is an internal suffering that comes with being a Christian. The trouble of your inner life. Do you have any thalipsis? Do you have any trouble or affliction that is causing pressure on your soul? Do you have any tidal wave that you're looking at in your life that you are looking at the tidal wave and wondering, this is about to crush me and I don't know how I'm going to survive underneath it? Do you have the trouble of being aware of your longings and realizing that they are unmet and then having to deal with the fact that your longings and desires may be unmet until Jesus returns? That would cause pressure on a soul. Do you have the affliction, do you have the thalipsis of having to fight and restrain your God-given desires and not settle for pseudo-satisfactions in this life? That would cause pressure on a soul. Do you have the burden of knowing that the world is not as it should be and that there is a resistance to the beauty, there is a resistance to the healing, there is a resistance to the shalom that was meant to reign, that now as a Christian you know is supposed to be reigning and it's called sin and something every day meets you at the door and says, today's not going to go the way it should. You want today to go a different way and it's not going to because there's a resistance to what you long for and there's always, sin is creeping at the door every day of your life. 
And that's just like the world and the enemy out there that hates that what's going on in your internal life, that you are now awakened to things beyond what you can see, that you're now awakened to the fact that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and you see it all coming out, out there that you go, this is, this is wrong. There's not supposed to be this strife. There's not supposed to be this hate. There's not supposed to be this racism. There's not supposed to be sex trafficking. There's not supposed to be poverty. There's not supposed to be hunger. There's not supposed to be cancer. There's not supposed to be divorce. There's not supposed to be any of those things. And yes, there. And I can't seem to fight against it enough to make it not there. That would be thalipsis that causes pressure on a soul. But that's just what's coming from without. How about what's coming from within? That there's an inner trouble that you cause. There's an inner trouble that you have put your hands to. Your lust and your addiction and your anger and your rage and your impatience and your demandingness and your deceit. All of the things that you choose to do on your own internally that, 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 that bear the marks of sin, that will also cause internal pressure on a soul. So we have this thalipsis from without and this sin from within. We have this trouble and this affliction and we have these things that we cause and all of them come together and this soul pressure mounts. And it's part of the, the blessing and the curse of coming to faith in Jesus is that there are people in the world who can live numb to that. But when Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, you can't help but be awakened to those things. That sometimes we cause our own afflictions and sometimes afflictions happen to us, but all of us know full well the weight of the lipsis in the world that lets us know this is causing a soul pressure that hurts. Which is exactly why David in the infamous Psalm 40, which you two put to music, just called 40, you're not familiar with it, go listen to it, it's haunting. But David is looking at the world, um, and he's looking at the world around him and the troubles that are mounting against him and the trouble that is coming from without, and then he also turns inward and looks at the sin within. And about two-thirds of the way through Psalm 40, listen to how David summarizes his life. He says, troubles without number surround me, and my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot even see. And he's combining those two things, trouble from without and sin within, and he says, they are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. He's saying that the soul pressure of trouble from without and trouble from within is crushing me from both sides. The troubles from without and the sin from within, and my heart fails within me. And the Bible would look at you and say, welcome to the life of a Christian. <laughs> It's impossible for you, because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, to ignore what David's talking about. But again, remember, remember, that if you're ever going to experience joy while you are being troubled and crushed under soul pressure, if you're ever going to experience joy, you have to acknowledge the trouble. You have to acknowledge the soul pressure. That I, and I'm not blaming anybody for doing this, because I do this every day. But we would all do well to probably quit lying to people when every single day when you see someone, they say, how are you doing? You say, good. Like, it's okay that you're not doing good every day. And I know it's like, well, I don't want to get into it. And I don't, like, if they really want to know, we could be there for a while. And I get all that. But maybe not even to lie to yourself when you leave that conversation to go, I'm not doing well. We have to acknowledge the trouble if we're ever going to find joy in the trouble. You have to feel it and not ignore it. But here's what I'm not saying. 
Feeling and acknowledging the trouble does not mean putting your trouble on the driver's seat of your life and saying, well, I'll just go wherever my trouble leads me. And I'll bow down to my trouble and I'll obey it and the soul pressure gets to decide what is best for me. But it certainly doesn't mean ignoring it or numbing it or playing some stupid game on your phone or numbing out to Netflix or getting really busy at work or really busy at school or ignoring how you're doing. You will not find joy in your trouble if you ignore the the pain and the trouble that you're in. You also will not find joy in your trouble if you give trouble the reins to your life. And so what does it look like to honor it, to acknowledge it, to name it, to pretend like it's not, to not pretend like it's not there, but also to begin to find joy in it? How did the Thessalonians do it? So if this was their suffering, if this was their, their thalipsis, this, they had this mounting uh, trouble that, that was crushing their soul. If, if we can relate to that, this, this idea of thalipsis, how did they have joy in the middle of that? How did they receive the gospel with joy while they were being troubled? Well, the answer is in our text as well, and it's at the end of our passage. Look with me again at verse 10. Can you throw that up there, the, the last slide of our, of our passage? Verse 10 kind of picks up in the middle of a run-on sentence. Paul's talking about the Lord, and he says, and the church, he says, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, that may not seem to answer how you can have joy in the middle of your affliction, um, but we're going to unpack that one line, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, and I want to talk about it on two levels. I want to talk about the reality of what that means, that Jesus has delivered his people from the wrath to come, and the implication of that for our suffering. So first, what is this wrath to come? Um, and how could, how could seeing what Jesus has done and saving us from the wrath to come begin to help us in our suffering find joy? So, the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? Well, it's the wrath of God. It's the holy, righteous, totally fair, and totally just judgment day that's coming. And I know when I say judgment day, and I know when I say wrath of God, that if you're a modern person, which you are because you're alive in the modern era, postmodern era, if you're alive today, then you balk at that idea. Like the idea of a judgment day or the idea of the wrath of God, you, you hear that and everyone in here goes, I don't know if I like to hear that. Or if you do like to hear that, you have zero friends. Okay? And so, so but, but, but let, let's, just, let's just consider this for a moment, this biblical idea of a judgment day and the wrath of God. Do you know that every single major world religion believes in a judgment day? Like billions and billions of people believe in a judgment day. Billions of people, every major world religion believes that there's a day that's coming where you will have to give an account to the judge of all the earth for how you've lived and what you've said and what you've thought. Everybody believes in a judgment day that's coming, and Christianity is no different. Christianity also believes in a judgment day. And I know that it seems irrelevant. I know that it seems like antiquated theology. I know it seems archaic that anyone would ever even consider that there is still a judgment day and that anyone that still believes in a judgment day needs to be enlightened because they don't understand um, that the modern era has finally figured out the cosmos and the spiritual realm. And we're so mature now in our enlightened, logical selves that we now fully understand that it's, it's, it's illogical to believe in a judgment day. But go with the billions of people. Just consider it for a minute if it's hard for you to acquiesce to that idea. 
that believe in a judgment day. And that Christianity is no different. And, and, and also, <laughs> please understand, and, and we, don't, we really don't have time to get into this, but I promise you, Logically speaking, if you remove from your worldview the idea of a judgment day, I promise you, your existential self will disintegrate very soon. And, and it would take me one coffee to prove that to you, I promise. And Daryl Jones, our assistant pastor, is happy to take you to coffee and prove it to you, okay? He would love to do that with you. But, but if you remove from your theology and from your worldview that you love Jesus and you love the Bible and you're, you're, you love, you know, you're spiritual but not religious, but this idea of the judgment day, I want to remove that part of my theology from my worldview, you have no reason to live very quickly. We're not going to get into that. It's not that. But I, I promise you, it, it, it falls apart. It disintegrates on itself if you remove it. Without getting into that, because that's a whole other sermon, just risk with me for a moment believing what the Bible says and what every other major religion says about a coming day where you will have to give an account for how you've lived, what you've said, and what you've thought. That thought, go there in your imagination. Go there. Even just briefly meditated on should terrify you. How you've treated people, what you've said to people, what you've thought about doing to people. If all of that is going to be brought to light, that nothing lives in darkness forever and a light will shine and show what has been hidden and the secret thoughts will be revealed, that day should terrify you. The greatest trouble and soul pressure you could ever imagine is awaiting you on that day if you go to that day on your own. Unrivaled suffering is what awaits you on judgment day on your own as you head towards it. And, and, and here's what the Bible says. Your subconscious knows that. It's why the modern man, it's why the modern self has so suppressed the idea of a judgment day because who wants to think about that? Who wants to spend their time in their, in their, in their quietness of their own mind thinking about that they're gonna have to give an account for what they've done? Give me Netflix every day. Like I don't, I, although I'm probably canceling Netflix soon. What are they even offering me anymore? Sorry, that's another, that's another sermon. But I'm, whatever it is, whatever streaming service you want to numb out to, give me that every day other than thinking about a judgment day. And so the enlightened mind has said, yeah, it's just easier not to think about that. I'll decide where we're headed on my own. I don't need some cosmic transcendent God that's going to judge everybody. That doesn't seem very nice. Let's just live in, in not that reality. But if you're willing to submit to what the Bible says about Judgment Day, and that day um, is coming where you and I will give an account, and that day where you and I will give an account is terrifying. Now hear what Paul says at the end of this first chapter. Jesus has delivered you from the wrath of that day. That if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you can actually, I know this sounds crazy, and it kind of deals with some crazy space-time continuum stuff, but it's, it's the power of the gospel. You can actually, today, in the present, already know what your verdict is gonna be on future Judgment Day. You can already get your verdict on Judgment Day in the present. Because you know as the Christian, this is what Paul just said, Jesus has already delivered you from, from the wrath of God all that day. But the wrath of God on that day hasn't happened yet, but Jesus has already futurely delivered you from that day, so in the present you can know you're safe on that future day. Because when you go to that day, if you belong to Jesus, you will be covered by his blood and held in his hands. And when you have to give an account for yourself, Jesus will say to the Father, this one is mine. 
and I paid for all of their sins, past, present, and future, and the Father will say, welcome to my kingdom that I have prepared for you since the beginning of the foundations of the world. Welcome, son. Welcome, daughter. Welcome home. That's your verdict already. You can already know that that terrifying judgment day that's coming for everybody in the world, you can already know how that's going to go for you. In other words, Jesus' suffering is your deliverance. That Jesus' suffering was for me to save me from the wrath to come. His suffering is my deliverance from the most horrific affliction I could ever face. You want to talk about soul pressure? Talk about standing before a righteous and just judge on judgment day. And then hear the salve of the gospel that says, yeah, and your verdict is already in because of Jesus. Jesus' suffering has cleared you from that day. His suffering is your refuge from your greatest possible suffering. So that's the reality of, that, of, of what Paul says in verse 10. That, that's, that's the biblical truth of what Jesus delivering you from judgment day, the wrath that is to come. But what does that mean for us in our current suffering? How does Jesus delivering me from my future eternal suffering, how does that begin to work its way in to begin to find joy in my suffering today? Because Jesus' suffering is my refuge for my ultimate chaos to come, he can certainly also be my refuge in the temporary chaos of today. This is what Paul is alluding to when he says, as you wait for Jesus, meaning while you wait, it's going to be hard, but don't worry. He's already taken care of the worst possible ending, so while you wait, you can know you're with him too. His suffering means that when I suffer, I'm not alone. That the one who suffered ultimately for me is also the one who is suffering with me now. He's the one who knows what it's like. He's the one who's greater than I, and he's not immune to the pain that I am in. The Bible says that he has tasted everything we've tasted. He is a high priest that is able to walk with empathy and sympathy with those who are suffering because he's tasted it too. You don't have a God who has no idea what suffering's like. You have a God who knows what it's like to bleed. You have a God who knows what it's like to weep. You have a God who knows what it's like to be abandoned and betrayed and hurt and wounded and anxious. You have a God who's tasted all that. And that suffering of Jesus, it purchased your ultimate safety on the future judgment day that's coming. It also means that while you're walking, while you're waiting on that day, you're not alone. Jesus' suffering means he can be a refuge for me and mine because when you and I suffer, when you and I are afflicted, when we have soul pressure, here's what the soul pressure, here's what the, here's what the thalipsis, here's what the suffering and the affliction and the trouble always wants us to do. It always wants us to write a narrative and to write a conclusion about how this suffering is going to leave us, how, what it's going to leave us like. And here's the ending of all of the narratives that your suffering and your thalipsis and your soul pressure says about you. You're going to end up all alone. And I don't care if you're married, you've got kids, I'm not talking about like even physically alone. What your suffering wants you to know, what your suffering wants you to believe, the story that your suffering has written for you is that this is only going to get worse and the path of it getting worse means you will be all alone when this is over. But the suffering of Jesus means that there is one who is greater than I who is not immune to the pain that I am in and he fully understands what it's like. Do you know how lonely you feel in your suffering? Because we begin to say things like this. No one could possibly understand what I'm going through. 
No one has the soul pressure that I have. No one fully understands all the, all the troubles from without and all the sin within and how that cocktail mixes in me. No one could fully understand me. And the gospel comes to you and says, actually, you're wrong. There is somebody who understands what you're going through, and his name's Jesus, and he's taking care of your ultimate suffering so he could be with you in your temporal suffering. This, my friends, is how we can have a joy in the middle of our suffering. Because no matter what is afflicting you, no matter what is troubling you, two things are always true because of the gospel. Two things are always true in your soul pressure because of the gospel. The first is this. Your suffering could never, ever take away your ultimate security of what's coming. That the worst possible ending to your story, the worst possible ending to your story is being welcomed home by your father. It's the worst thing that can happen to you. And it only gets better from there. And so whatever your suffering is telling you, you can look at your suffering and say, it hurts, it's crushing my soul right now, but I know how this story ends and it doesn't end the way that my suffering wants me to believe it does. But here's the second thing that we know because of the gospel in our suffering. You are not alone in your suffering. And you are understood in your suffering. And I don't even care if it's a trouble and a suffering and a soul pressure that you've caused with your own hands. You are not alone because the same Jesus that saves you from the wrath to come is the same Jesus that is with you in your current trouble. And your current trouble cannot take him away from you. That if you're staring at a tidal wave and you believe it's about to crush you, Jesus is standing with you, holding your hand, saying, I won't let go. I'm with you. I'm not afraid of the tidal wave the way that you're afraid of the tidal wave. And I'm not afraid of what sits on the other side of the tidal wave because I have been there and back. And I'm with you and I'm not leaving you. I will walk through this with you. I get it. And as awful as this may be to hear, I know this, 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 this may, like, some of you are so sunburned from the affliction that this is like tender to the touch to even say this because some of you are in the valley right now. But you may not ever be able to know that he is with you and that he is near you until you are afflicted. I know that's hard to hear, especially if you're in the middle of a valley right now. But biblical joy in suffering cannot come by avoiding the suffering. You may only know how near Jesus is when you are walking in the valley and you are all alone. You will not know the joy of him being with you if you try at every step to avoid the valley altogether. Remember in Psalm 40 when David says, he's crying out and he says, my troubles and my sin are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. If you're bald, don't take that too literally. It just means that there there are a lot of troubles going on, okay? There's a lot and David's looking for the closest thing to him that he can't count. And he's saying, "I I can't even... It's like more than I can even number the troubles from without and the sin coming from within and they mix together and it's too much and so my heart fails within me. I know many of you can relate to that statement. And you may be sitting here and you may be thinking, I don't really feel like my troubles are too much right now and part of me would say, give it time. But, but I also, you don't have to go looking for suffering. And because here's what else I know, if you're alive and you're a Christian, there's a soul pressure, there's affliction. 
And so maybe all that it would take to do is literally, and this may sound like a, like a dark and twisted exercise, maybe it might help you to start listing out your troubles. Here are the things that trouble me. And it can be, like, don't do the comparison game. Like, well, I don't have leukemia, so I guess I can't list some things. No, you may be afraid of who you're about to move in with. You may be sick of your parents. You may be afraid of the addiction that's got you in its grip. You may not be sure how you're going to pay bills next month. You may worry about the vocation that you've chosen to, to step into and how all that's going to work out. You may worry about whether or not your dog is going to be okay. And that is soul pressure. And if you begin to number them, if you begin to name them, you would join David and you and go, they're too many to number. Like, I, I could lose sleep over just about anything. I can be, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I can be afraid of everything. I can, I can be troubled by everything in my life. And if you want me just to list some, I, I'm happy to do that. I'm more inviting you into the idea that if you're alive and breathing, there are troubles that are too many for you to face. They're more than the numbers of hairs on your head. And then listen to this. Hear David's imagery of what he says in Psalm 40, the, the innumerable amounts of trouble and sin that cause his heart to despair. And then hear what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And there's an intimacy and there's a nearness that we would say the troubles are too many to number. I can't even number how many troubles and how much sin I've got going on. And Jesus would say, I know them all. I know them all. I can count them. And I'm not afraid of them. And here's how you begin to discover that, that, that Jesus is your joy in the middle of your suffering, is that he begins to, to, to convince you that he knows the number of hairs on your head, and he knows them because he's that close to you. The way Jesus knows what you're going through is because he's with you. And the more you believe that Jesus is with you in your suffering, guess what you'll have? You'll have a joy that the trouble can't touch. Because the trouble can't take away a Jesus that's promised to be with you no matter what goes down. The, the, the trouble can't take away someone who's walking beside you and who's holding you and who's standing beneath the tidal wave with you saying, I know every single one of these trouble. I know dozens more that you don't even know about that are coming, and I'm with you. And that is a joy that no suffering, no trouble can take away. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be our refuge you are a refuge for our ultimate trouble that is coming. You have already saved us and delivered us from the wrath to come. And so in, in that place, um, as we meditate and ruminate on your suffering on our behalf, would you also be the same Jesus who is closer to us than a brother who knows the hairs on our head and who walks with us in our valley? May it produce a joy in us that our valleys can't touch, we pray. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.